The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, hey, good morning. I've got New Yorker Michael Schoen joining us to talk about his countless experiences as a broadcast journalist. I'm so excited. Today, Michael is a CBS News anchor in the New York market. He's always wanted to report the news, and even as a young age, he was drawn to news and news commentary. He graduated for the New York City University Queens College, and his career path has taken him from broadcasting all news radio in Philadelphia, L.A., and New York to newscasts on two national networks, RKO Radio Network and CBS News. He's been a beat reporter, a war correspondent, and also, by the way, he does voiceovers doing commercials and film narrations and internet videos. And he's covered some of the nation's biggest stories from the Gulf War to political campaigns to momentous courtroom processes, I guess you'd call them. Um, So... News anchors and broadcast journalists, in my opinion, are often like just like private investigators. You know, we operate right on the front lines. We conduct spontaneous interviews. We, ha- we report just the facts. And probably the most important quality is we have to think on our feet and be ready for any new development. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be with you and the great technology that makes us sound like we're in the same room, but we're I as know. far apart as we can be in the continental U.S. Exactly. You're in New York and I'm in California. It's, it's amazing. So um, I'm curious how you got your first radio job. Well, I was out of college. It was a recession. And one of the reasons that the broadcast industry was so hard hit was because um, – they took away all the cigarette advertising, which, who, who knows, about 20% of all the revenue. Hmm. Uh, wow. Newspapers could still put cigarette ads on, but radio and television were not able to put any cigarette commercials on. That uh, created a very recession-like area. So I, the first job out of college was uh, delivering duty-free goods to airplanes at JFK Airport. And while hmm. looking. And then uh, I got a break where I was able to work at uh, ABC News in New York as a desk assistant. That's the low-end job. What is that? What is a desk assistant? Desk assistant does whatever the desk needs. Desk is a synonym for the editor, the person in charge of the newsroom. And uh, excuse me. And that, uh, and I would be responsible for making sure people had the right wire copy and then telexes that came in and I'd have to make sure that the paper didn't run out on those machines. All of those things are obsolete now because they're all, they all come in on the computer right at your desk. 
So desk assistants do different work nowadays. Also, in those days, they allowed uh, desk assistants to go get coffee. So they would send you out and you'd get coffee for everybody or sandwiches. And um, that was part of the job. They've since stopped having desk assistants do that in the whole <laughs> news business, which is the right thing. I don't right. mind that I had had to do it, but that got me started. Then um, another break I got was a little radio station right in Atlantic City where I saw you recently. Yes. And, um, that was a small station that uh, purported to be full service. You know, it was low pay and all that, hard work, but I learned so much there. And full then service, I brought, full service, full service meaning, meaning uh, news, weather, sports, a little bit of music, okay, community events, and uh, everything everything you needed to know in your life. This radio station tried to deliver, and a lot of stations did back in those days. We're talking about the 1970s. Uh huh. And then um, from there, I worked my way up to. Uh, Philadelphia, where I began my all-news radio career. So what, what was the first year you had a news job? It was uh, 1976. So, okay, so I was trying to put that together with the Nixon resignation. So you were, that was I after. I actually was doing a, a little talk show in, the, in southern New Jersey when that happened, and it was un- unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, my listenership, like, quadrupled. During that, that was a long crisis. That wasn't just a resignation. That was everything building up and all the people who oh, loved him and all the people who hated him. And, you know, it was really I, great yeah. fodder for what is not talk radio of today, but talk, you know, I, I tried not to be uh, an ideologue. I just was uh, try to be in the middle of the road and try to keep the facts straight. Mm-hmm. Which was, was difficult. I was glued to the TV, I remember. <laughs> That was amazing. So that would have been an exciting time to start. That was one of my first uh, things that I run into. uh, But really what got me on the map, if I can digress for a moment, Uh I was working at this small station in Atlantic City. And the biggest thing that happened to them in so many years, this is before the casinos, just before the casinos, was a corruption trial. took place in Camden, New Jersey, about an hour's drive away. Mm -hmm. I think it was three former mayors public works guys and different um, public officials were all accused of corruption. Anytime you wanted to uh, do work for the city, you had to kick back 5 to 10%. And it went back uh, years and years to the, to the 50s. And these guys were on trial. And every day I, w- I went there, I practically lived there and reported on this for uh, my station. But I also made contacts in Philadelphia and New York and presented trial coverage to them. It was that big a story. And that got me known in the area. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've got a great voice, and I, so I can certainly see why you would be attractive to a news, news radio station. Well, the first, the first thing is if you sound okay, then people can listen to you. You can, you can be telling great things, and if you don't sound good, it's hard to listen to. It. I mean, <laughs> yes. it's just one of those things. Like, uh, yeah. Part of why radio is what it is. Yeah. You have to have an interesting sound. Exactly. So then what, ha- what happened after that? What was your next big assignment? I started to, to work part-time at a station in Philadelphia. From there, it's like if you're in um, uh, Iowa, you want to get to Chicago. If you're in uh, Oklahoma, you want to get to Dallas. If you're in uh, Denver, you want to get to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. From where I was in southern New Jersey, you want to get to Philadelphia. That's the nearest big city. And okay. then, then you can actually make a living at it and start your career. So I was working part-time. I was working like seven shifts a week between the two places. 
And I figured, oh, this won't take very long. Fifteen months later, they gave me a full-time gig. Oh, great. So, uh, you know, I was young enough to be able to struggle like that and work and my work own. around And work around the clock, I suspect. Pretty much. You know, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was a 90-minute commute then for, for two weekend uh, days. But then, again, they got, I got known. Yeah. Great. So um, I'm going to fast forward for a second because I want to know what a news anchor's day is like. What do you, how do you, what do, you do? Um, Well, you'll be interesting to know, interested to know that um, in my current job where I work for WCBS New York, it's a powerhouse radio station with a great heritage. And I get, I get in two hours before my first stint on the air and I write my whole script. People don't realize that we write our own stuff. I did and not I'm responsible, realize that either. I, I'm responsible through the whole shift, which consists of uh, four hours on the air. Not straight four hours, but four hours where, where you're alternating with another person who's your co-anchor. And um, I'm responsible for making sure everything's up to date throughout the day. And, you know, it's not that hard for me because I've been doing it for so long. But it is, it is a grind. So how do you know if you have enough copy for four hours? Excellent. Excellent question. <laughs> you know because you, you have experience. You know exactly what needs to fit into a section. It's divided up into sections. You and know he, how many words you can speak a minute? Well, I don't really. I do, but I know like 125, 130 words will fill a minute, but I don't really work that way. I okay. do in voiceover, but not in news radio. In news radio, you write the story briefly. I've learned how to write briefly, get a lot of information into a few sentences. And then um, I pretty know, well, well know what fits into a section. People think, you know, well, you have an hour to fill. How do you fill it? And it's just the opposite. It's how do you get everything in that you right. want to <laughs> it's, That's it's true. really just the opposite of what people think. And they throw a lot of things in that take up time, like different features and that, that detracts from the amount of news copy that you could get on. Plus, uh, we have a lot of commercials. Well, so do you decide the news you're going to cover? Another good question. That's one thing I do not have to worry about, although I collaborate with my producer. The producer gives me a, a run, what they call a rundown, which is pretty much here are the stories that we want to put on the air. Okay. And I can say, well, you know, can we do this instead or... And it's a collaborative process, but that's something I don't have to worry about. Hmm. It's somebody else's job. Interesting. But, you, um, but you're the one that decides on how it gets presented. Exactly. And uh, because of the nature of the business, I don't have a copy editor reading. When I worked at Network, you'd submit your script to a copy editor, and the copy editor, well, I'd rather you say this. or not. Well, you know, it wasn't a difficult process, but it was an extra layer to make the quality control here it's really up to me, and they hmm. trust me because of my track record. Well, yeah. That, if you were on the lower echelon, they'd probably still be checking your copy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just not, there's no time or uh, ability to do that because we, we're, we have deadlines, and we pretty much use up all the time we have. That's amazing. And so, and so how often do you broadcast a week? I, I, I'm actually technically a freelancer, so I, I broadcast less than five days, although next week I'm working five days because it's uh, holiday time. 
I work uh, at least three days a week and often more, four up to five. Okay, so from the time you leave home to the time you get back, how many hours has transpired? Ten. On a full okay. shift and on a half shift, it would be six. Okay. That's just the personal, the personal burden of the work. Okay. And have you ever had a big curve thrown at you that uh, you really kind of took you up straight and said, what, do I, what am I going to do with this? Oh, sure. It happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, nothing immediately comes to mind, but the nature of news is that uh, things break all the time. So some, you're on the air. Like, uh, I'll give you an example. When JFK Jr. flew his plane, yes. uh, somebody called the newsroom, somebody knowledgeable that we knew, called the newsroom and said his plane is missing. Wow. So you know, we're working on stories and whatever, and now we have this thing to, fu- to chase. Because you yeah. can't just go on the air and say his plane is missing. You have to make sure that that's correct. Correct. And then planes don't just get missing. You've got to figure out what happened and you know, whether uh, there was some kind of a crash or whatever, which, of course, was what happened. Exactly. And you know, that happens all the time, things like that, smaller things. Plane all crashes, right, well, you know, there's no ever way to predict things like plane crashes or big fires or things exactly. like that. Exactly, yeah. Breaking news. We're going to take a break, Michael. Uh, Michael Schoen will be right back after this commercial break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Michael Schoen is a CBS news anchor in New York. 
and he's joining us today to talk about what he does. And so, Michael, we were talking about the kind of breaking news, but let's go back into your early days again. Um, you went from um, radio to RKO. Uh, RKO was a, a very, that's a very interesting uh, time in broadcasting. I would say the peak for news radio was the 70s. People hmm. really listened a lot to to uh, the news on the radio then. Now, later, they t- turned to TV more often. So if something big happened, they turned the radio on back then. And then something happened pr- with the growth of cable TV, where they go to the TV now. Yeah. They still come to us. And we still, you know, during Hurricane Sandy, there was nobody you could do better than us. We, we were, uh, you could get us on the portable radio. Your TV and your cable were out if you had no power. And we really did uh, our ratings like quadruple for that period hmm. and we won all kinds of awards. I was part of it, but I, you know, not specifically the leader of it. Mm-hmm. But th- nobody can do what radio can do in those kinds of situations. But well, you, you, Radio can respond much quick, more quickly, correct? Yes. And you just get somebody on the phone and you're, you're alive. With TV, you've got to go get a camera over there. Right. So, I mean, they do some phone things, too, when they, when they have to. But uh, radio is nimble, and we know how to do it. We oh, that's just, a good way to describe it. Yeah. Interesting. So, so go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, the idea of um, doing news on the radio in the 70s was very staid. You know, the newscaster would say, Good morning. <laughs> and, and that was the style that was around from the beginning of radio back in the 1930s. But RKO came around and uh, it actually started in 79. So the 1980s was, was our window. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the idea was to pre- present news in short form that would be compatible with music stations. That was the concept. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, <clears throat> excuse me. Unfortunately, the um, the government got easy and said you don't have to do news if you don't want. So that impeded the growth of RKO. But the thing that RKO accomplished was to change that stodgy sound uh, that mm-hmm. was characteristic of newscasting and make it conversational the way it is today. Right. The way t- you know people, we always say now, write the way you talk. Don't right. try to you know embellish everything. It's there's still a lot of that going on. You know, where people use cliches like shots rang out and it was a grisly discovery. <laughs> but basically, the way I write, and I'm known for it in small circles, is write the way you talk. Yeah, this exactly. is the way I would tell you if we were sitting and having coffee together. And that's, that's my goal, to sound natural and write naturally. And RKO was, was all of that. And then um, CBS decided to start one, one of those networks in the same vein, and I, I moved over there, had a bit of a better position with better pay. And I did that for 10 years. Also being on the regular, uh, the, old, the old fashioned network, which we called the mothership. Which Not was, that. what was that? that? Was CBS News. What you CBS, hear on. Yeah? Yeah, just uh, CBS News Radio. And they do an hourly broadcast on the top of the hour, and they do feature things and updates. Huh. And, and and you call that the mothership, right? From the uh, from the young adult network that I I went to work for. The, uh. So that was uh, that was the the main function at CBS News was the the uh, network hourlies, which are still 
pretty much the same, same basis. Yeah. Well, what was your most memorable story? The most memorable story, I was sitting right there in the newsroom, and it was the day in 1987 that the market crashed. Now, if you remember, that day, the Dow Industrials lost uh, something in the vicinity of 500 points, uh, and that was a lot, even more than it would be today. Yeah. But during the day, as you were watching it happen, all these systems went down, and all these people couldn't make trades, and there was so much demand to sell, and there was no buyers. You didn't know where we were headed. We, were, we, we could have been headed to you know the bread lines and the unemployment that we had in the 1930s. Right. The Depression, 29. Uh, so it turns out, when you look back on it, it was really just an episode. A bad one, but, but one we could recover from. But when right. it was in the middle, when it was happening, we had no way of knowing what the bottom was. So that was really exciting every hour. And I've covered earthquakes, which the way earthquake stories unfold, you feel it. You know something big has happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you have to find out what the consequences are, what roadway was knocked down, what apartment house crumbled. And I've covered... Uh, you the, were in L.A. at the Northridge earthquake, right? Northridge, but the Loma Prieta, I was in New York. Oh. And I did, I did uh, five newscasts on the Young Adult Network, and then I did five hourlies on the big network, ten in a row, worked the double shift as this thing unfolded. That was the one where the World Series was disrupted in yeah. 1989. Yes, and I'm in Oakland, so I was right yeah. in the middle of that. Right. So that one, I coined the phrase, it wasn't the big one, but it was big enough. Yeah. <laughs> and I used that phrase again for Northridge because it was really the same thing that happened. Yeah. And then I was working for KFWB Los Angeles, which uh, was the, the all-news radio format that they had then. They don't have it anymore. They, they've now switched to talk radio. But back then, there were two all-news stations. There was KNX Los Angeles and KFWB Los Angeles, and they competed a lot. Now, I was with CBS for, you know, 12 years before, and then I go to KFWB, and I'm working for Westinghouse Broadcasting. Next thing you know, they merge. Actually, Westinghouse bought out CBS, and my paychecks say CBS again. <laughs> so I couldn't get away. <laughs> That's too funny. And, I'm, and, and this job that I have now, I've been there 12 years, which is the longest I've been anywhere. Broadcasters don't stay. Really? They Interesting. Move. So there's a, there's a lot of turnover then. Uh, th not it's so much today as there was, you know, people always trying to move to improve their position. Uh-huh. Now, the way broadcasting is kind of settled into a, an area where it's kind of in a defensive mode, trying to stay ahead of the technology changes, and people stay. People, you know, there's not that many jobs around. Well, and you were one of the ones picked to cover the Gulf War. How did that all happen? One day, <laughs> um, my boss, Larry McCoy, said, we want to send you to the Gulf if the war breaks out, which startled me because I was then a news anchor. I wasn't somebody you send. But um, they did send me. And uh, my boss, Larry McCoy, said, uh, go to Diane, who was my girlfriend at the time, and ask her. So I went to, <laughs> Diane. I went to Diane. I said, they want to send me to the Gulf War. And she said, wow, that's a great assignment. And I said to her, but I won't go unless you marry me first. Ah. So that was, um, I think it was a Thursday or whatever. We had a couple of days to get the license, and she is an investigative reporter, as you know. 
Yes. She had an assignment out of town on that Monday, which was the January 14th, 1991. And Tuesday was the day the war was going to break out. That was, you know, the line in the sand. So got married on Monday. <laughs> no notice. <laughs> right. Got married on Monday. And on Tuesday, I went to cover the war till it was over. Oh, my goodness. We immediately separated. And she was covering um, a story in Ohio. So away I went. But we, that, we've been married since. That is too funny. No pressure, though. No pressure. It's actually the short version of the story. There's plenty more to go yes, in that. I'm sure there is. We'll talk another time. <laughs> yeah. But the Gulf oh. War was um, the first thing that I, that I felt was when we took a military plane out of um, Andrews Air Force Base near Washington, D.C. We had to get to Washington first. Mm -hmm. A veteran CBS News correspondent, uh, Chris Glenn, and I went together. And we got to Andrews. We had to wait. And finally, we, got, we had an eight-hour flight to uh, an Air Force base in Germany, then another eight hours into Saudi Arabia. And what you knew was, we're here, you can't get out. There's no, way, there's no method of transportation to get you out if you had to get, get out. Really? Yeah. That, uh, people did come and go, but it was difficult. And you had, to, you had to have a lot of connections to be able to come and go. That was the way it started. As you know, that war was not a long war, so things turned around a bit. But a your, lot of your adrenaline must have been really pumping. Yes, um, when you work a story like that, basically you're working 24 hours a day. Yeah. And when I slept, I kept the TV and the radio on in my. I had a hotel room. I kept the TV and I had my own personal radio that I had brought with me. And when the radio and the TV went silent, I knew it was an air raid, so it woke me up. Wow. I didn't get much sleep. I didn't eat much, although there was, you know, it wasn't like we were starving. We had food around. But um, I did lose a lot of weight during that uh, two-month period that the war was executed. The frustration was we were restricted in what we could do. So everything was done by pool, which means you have one, or, one, one print reporter, one broadcaster, one photographer – and they would file reports, and then you could use those reports because we were part of the pool. And sometimes we were the pool. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, we couldn't get out on the front lines like they did in the Iraq war that followed in 03. Oh, we, I see. I, I spoke to a lot of military people. I was able to, to, to do some original reporting, but it was frustrating. And, of course, there were Scud missile attacks all the time. So right. that huh. just led to the, the adrenaline you spoke of because the— yeah. How many you people? Go, you couldn't go into a shelter. You had to do your job. How many people were with you? CBS had quite a few people over there, you know, for the TV side and for the. We had a, a radio unit of about uh, five people, and you, you know, just reporters. We didn't have producers. And we and were all it, doing our yeah, thing. and it must have felt like you were on alert twenty four seven. Absolutely. Yeah. The only thing that's comparable to that is when you're covering a major thing like a political convention. There's, no, there's nothing stopping. It just keeps going on and on and on. And the other thing is, uh, particularly for the Gulf War, my people back in New York couldn't get enough reporting. So it was uh, the, the top of the hour. Mm -hmm. Then four or five times during the hour, they would have you know, break-in special reports. Right. And then when big things were happening, like when the ground war started, it was 
24-7 live. So, like, you know, they just kept talking and kept bringing different people in, and I participated in all of that. So I was constantly on the air, and Diane, who had just married me, was traveling around the country listening on different CBS stations <laughs> to find me. And we were actually able to speak. We had satellite phones, which were hard to, you couldn't get to use them all the time. Right. But every now and then I would sneak uh, away and call her on the satellite phone, which oh, is a amazing. precursor to what we're doing right now. Ex- on uh, Exactly, on Skype. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we need to take another break, Michael. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. IRB Search is where quality matters. IRB provides access to the best online data for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB data gives you strength in numbers, allowing you to access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified, and you'll receive a two-week free trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112. To find out why IRB Search is simply the best. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm pleased to share the mic today with Michael Shoa, news anchor from CBS News New York. And we were just talking about the Kuwait war, and I asked Michael on the break if this was the same thing he was involved in as the Pentagon pool of journalists. And go ahead, Mike, Michael, uh, and tell yeah. what you answered to that. It was Operation uh, Desert Shield before mm-hmm. the war broke out. Then they changed it to Operation Desert Storm with shock and awe and bombings and whatever. And... What happened was there was a Pentagon pool that was assembled, and if S.H.I.E.L.D. turned into Storm, 
we were going to be activated. So it's almost like being in the military where you, uh, you get your orders and... You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and so <laughs> we did. And um, the Pentagon pool was uh, fit onto a C-141 Starlifter. That's a big military transport plane. And it's, um, you see your seats face the back. The first thing they give you is uh, earplugs because the, the cabin is not insulated. So it's really loud, unlike a commercial airliner, let's say. Right, yeah. And it was 16 hours in the air, you know, two eight-hour jaunts, as I told you before. And everybody on that plane was a journalist or a technician or a photographer or a uh, sound person. And, the, and everything was done in uh, what they call high eight video. So oh, that's, right. that's completely obsolete now, but <laughs> it, it, it's better than the Vietnam War, which was done. Well, the Vietnam War was done a lot in 16 millimeter film, mm. but the, uh, the high eight footage should be pretty good. It's not, it's not high def as the later wars have been. Right, but, right. You know, the technology at, at the time, everybody had to use high eight, which was not the standard. Standard then was uh, called beta, so that's just a, a little side trip. And you were you were going over with some pretty well known people. Yeah, I can't remember all of them, but uh, there were some brand name people, news anchors, and uh, you know, big time news people. Sam Donaldson was one of them, hmm. because I, I Sam Donaldson knew Diane, so I showed him my, our wedding pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I love and, that. And he said, "And here you are." <laughs> <laughs> because you know you just went when you went over there that was it you were dedicated to do that and nothing else in your life were you concerned about the danger you can't really be that yeah. uh, if you're going to go over there it's like if you're going to scuba dive it's not natural to go in the water and breathe but <laughs> if you decide you want to do that you've got to forget about the phobias and do it kind of so, like skydiving <laughs> yeah same thing if you're going to jump out of an airplane yeah. You've got to say, well, this is going to be fun. And you don't, you don't worry about, well, what if the chute doesn't open? Yeah. So, you know, it's a similar thing when you cover, um, you're in a war zone. If, if you're a journalist, you're not the priority and you can't think of your personal safety or you can't do your job. Mm-hmm. So, and that was pretty much universal. I didn't perceive anyone to be afraid. When the missile strikes came, they came. Yeah. And one in particular was right near my hotel. I was in... Um, I can't remember the name of the town, but it was near Dharan, which was a big air base. And so it was a target for Scud missiles. I was briefly in Riyadh where the briefings took place that everybody watched. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it there. I I didn't have enough access to enough things. So I agitated my home uh, editors to to move me back, and they did. Agitated is such a great word. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it's got to look after yourself. They don't know what's going on. They just hear your results. So yeah. Um, so I went back to uh, the Dharan area, and there were, uh, if you remember that water company, the missile hit the, that building where the water company was housed, mm-hmm. killed quite a few people, and that was maybe a mile away from where I was sleeping. Mm. So my mother <laughs> was very worried. And I'm sure. Until, until I found out that I was not, that no scratches. Now, at the end, though, um, you rode, didn't you ride into Kuwait with the Saudi troops? Exactly, yes. Uh, what happened was um, we heard that um, there was going to be this signing of a treaty, which happened. And then you had to find your way in. You know, that was really on us. So 
we went to this guy, um, Mohammed. Everybody's name was Mohammed, but he was a Saudi uh, Air Force colonel. Uh, two of us, uh, a guy named Lou, Lou Miliano, who was working for the station I work for now, and me from the network. And we tried to sweet talk him into letting us go on his uh, plane. And that was a um, another uh, cargo plane, but it was smaller and it was run by propellers. And he said, uh, you know, gave us some resistance because some other people from CBS were nasty to him. And uh, so we had a sweet talk and then he finally let us aboard. So it was uh, this guy from Tampa TV and mm-hmm. his uh, photographer and Lou and I and a lot of Arabic speak- speaking journalists. And we went and we took, um, took that plane to the border of Kuwait. And then we switched to a bus and we went in on a bus as the sun was coming up. Yeah. And it was amazing. Everything was bombed out. The, the country had no running water, no electricity, but we ran into people uh, as we went down the route into Kuwait City who uh, were just uh, celebrating in the street. And I always made the comparison between the men and the women. The women were dancing and, and ululating, which is, yeah. you may remember that. Yes. They were just so happy and celebrating and, oh, it's so great, you know, George Bush. <laughs> and huh. then when I had a Saudi identification badge so they they didn't know who I was at first when I said I was from America they would say how great George Bush was he was their liberator and then mm-hmm. we went and uh, then the men would be firing these uh, I don't know where they got them assault weapons into the sky in celebration but the women talked about how great it is to be liberated and the men talked about how we're going to get Saddam Hussein and we're going to tear him apart <laughs> that's the difference between wow that was quite an experience it was mindful of uh VE Day in Paris, you know, the whole idea yes. of these people who have been subjugated and everybody talked about somebody that was missing or dead and the country yeah. was, you know, and one guy I, I put on the air who said, uh, you know, the buildings have been destroyed, we can rebuild and we will rebuild and they did. The, what the an Kuwaitis, amazing Kuwaitis are a very small, very small, very rich country and they, but they yeah. have great determination what a great experience something you 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 couldn't ever explain unless you were there i'm sure you you can't even don't even have words to really adequately explain how you were feeling and i and i uh got back to new york what happened was the war ended they signed the treaty and my Uh boss says okay now work your way out by this time there were flights you'd have to go across the uh, King Fahd Causeway into Bahrain, which I did. And I did it the night before because Saudi Arabia is completely dry and you couldn't get a drink. And all mm-hmm. these journalists, these heavy drinking journalists were on the wagon the whole time. <laughs> so uh, I spent my final night there at a hotel in Bahrain where I had a glass of wine to break my fast. And then I had a flight the next morning and I met Diane in Paris and we had our little honeymoon there. Ah, that's great. What a great love story. Yeah. And then um, that was that. And when I got back to New York and I walked into the newsroom for the first time, CBS is a pretty big uh, newsroom. They uh, erupted in spontaneous applause, which is very moving for me. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. To be so, recognized by your peers, for sure. Yeah, it's right. wonderful. Yeah. Well, Michael, what are some of the political campaigns you've covered? 
I've covered uh, 84 and 88 and 92 and, you know, local campaigns as well, but you, there, there's not as much hoopla. But going to a political convention is fabulous because everybody's there. Yeah. If you go to the Democrats, all the Democrats who mean anything are there, plus all the groups that they work with, like the National Organization for Women and uh, different civil rights groups and, you know, groups that are associated with Democrats. And then if you go to the Republicans, the NRA and different groups that are associated with Republicans are there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the same groups go to both. Correct. Uh, and there are, everybody's there. Every, you, you can uh, blow off one governor to speak to a senator, you know. It's not, that's not the everyday experience. And yeah. the conventions are very interesting. When I was a little kid, I started getting interested in those conventions. It's just the, the process. They, they've streamlined it a lot now because it's all made for television. But in the old days, they, they had these big speeches, you know, they'd nominate somebody and there was a speech. Then somebody's going to second the nomination and that was a big speech. And everybody looked forward to the candidate when he was finally nominated making his big speech. And that still exists. But they have definitely streamlined the conventions. But covering those is great. And covering the debates, uh, which I have done a little bit of. What would you say would, was the most interesting uh, convention you attended? I think 84 Democrats. I was on the floor... Uh, getting on the floor is difficult. That's, that's an inside thing. You can't just get on there. You have a limited number of passes and you, the passes are spread around to a few people. Uh-huh. I was on the floor when Walter Mondale said, uh, we need to raise taxes. I'm going to raise your taxes. And I just told you that, but he won't, meaning Ronald Reagan. And we looked at each other, we reporters on the floor, he just blew the election. Yeah, really. Now, that wasn't actually what blew the election. There's no way he was going to win in the first place because Ronald Reagan was so popular. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, it was a moment that everyone remembered. And it was definitely not a good strategy. No, I can't. Uh, I, you know, interestingly enough, I don't even remember that statement. But, uh, but you're right. Uh, he didn't have a chance anyway. And the, the New York governor, Mario Cuomo, gave a great speech, and everybody thought he'd want to run for president, and he never did. I do remember that speech. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, and he never did. And he was a, a you know, very well-respected personality. And in that uh, particular political convention, we broadcast from the convention. We did our hourlies from the convention floor. And then... Uh, you may remember that this happened at the time of the convention, the San Ysidro McDonald's massacre. Mm-hmm. I forget how many people were killed, but it was a big story. So we had to start the newscast from New York because you couldn't be talking about, you know, eight people are dead and whatever with happy days are here again playing in the background. <laughs> you know, that's fine when you're talking about uh, so-and-so is going to speak today and um, everybody's waiting to hear this or that. But if you, you know, when you had that story that had to be the lead every, every newscast, so they had to change their plans, start the uh, newscast in New York, and then with more news, let's go to the convention floor and Michael Schoen. So that, that was an interesting thing. You, you asked me about yeah. getting thrown curves, and that was certainly yeah. one of them. Yeah, and yes. I mean, that happens to, invest, to private investigators as well. You, you run into, um, you know, contacting somebody and, oh, they died yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about that's that's common between investigative reporters and PIs uh-huh. is you t- you go where it, it takes you, you know, whatever the facts right. take you. And the one thing that I've always said about investigative reporting is 
if everything doesn't fit right, then you better find another hypothesis. Same thing with PIs. If, mm-hmm. if it doesn't fit, then maybe your theory's wrong. Maybe, you, exactly. maybe something else is what's happening. Exactly right. Yeah, that, exactly that we right. have in common with investigative reporting and PI. We have more in common. We just uh, we have lot. Yeah, we have yeah. lots in common, and and we need to take another break. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We were just saying that news anchors have much in common with private investigators, and CBS news anchor Michael Schoen is here today to talk about his work as a broadcast journalist. And... um, Michael, we were just talking about how do you keep your personal viewpoint out of your news? It's actually the answer. The simple answer to that is it is impossible. So you can't keep just the way you uh, have a perspective on a story is going to reflect mm. the way you personally see it. But at the same time, uh, I've been doing this a long time and I know how to be objective. I know how to get both sides on and mm-hmm. – let it speak for itself. It's not really, nobody cares what I think. They mm-hmm. care what the, what's happening or you know, the stories that are being presented. So it's not easy. And it's ultimately, it's impossible to be completely objective. But you can do your work as a pro and do it sure. you know, from down the middle. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and particularly if, if you're putting somebody else on to give their viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But you, you, you may to... think, you know, what he's saying is really stupid or it's really misleading. <laughs> but, right. you know, you just just let them speak because that's really your job. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a balancing act. As we say, we're not, 
I always say as a private investigator, we're not there to create the news. We're there to report it. And I think if you uh, watch television or listen to news radio, you can tell when somebody's being biased or when somebody disapproves of something. So it's, it's our job not to have that get in there. Yes, I think we have some examples of uh, stations that have that viewpoint, actually. Right, but <laughs> which if we if, won't if, name. If, they, if, the, if these stations present themselves as, you know, we're going to be liberal or we're going to be conservative, you know, then it's okay. That's what you should expect from them. But when, you, when it comes to news, news is not uh, opinions. News is not, you know, unless it's labeled as commentary, news is supposed to be objective. Yeah. You know, that's the way I feel about it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I, yeah, absolutely. So we haven't talked anything about your voiceover um, talent, I should say. You have, you do voiceovers as well as being, a, as well as being a CBS news anchor. So now, that's a balancing those. act. <laughs> that is because um, it's, there's potential conflict and uh, the company I work for, CBS, if I was uh, under contract, which I used to be, they wouldn't let me do it. But hmm. because I'm a, a technically a freelancer, I, I'm a freelancer and also an employee. It's a, it's a uh, fine line there. So I can do it and I, in fact, do it for them. I have a deal with them to do commercials for them. Interesting. And um, so it's not like I'm hiding it. Right. And, so, and when I promote myself, I promote only the voiceover because there's nothing really to promote in my broadcasting career. You know, I'm not looking to make a name for myself there. I've been around long enough and I am who I am. But with voiceover, uh, the hardest part of it is getting the work. So you have to promote yourself and you have to audition and you have to network with people. And getting the work is the tough part as opposed to doing the work. So what happens is after uh, a while, you, you start to build up a client base and they come back to you a lot. That's the basis for, for that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And you recently did a feature piece about electricity. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? That was um, for the Discovery Channel, and it's been on the air already. That was um, bringing electricity and lighting to the third world areas where there's no way that they could get on the grid. So a remote mountain village, let's say, in Nepal. And um, <clears throat> the three... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> The three places that we covered in this documentary were Nepal, India, and the Philippines. And the Philippines was really interesting because they had no electric power, but they, hmm. they, had, uh, they lived near a landfill in this particular village. And the landfill was covered with these uh, water bottles, plastic really? bottles that, you know, somebody drank the liquid out of it. Right. And then the bottle's going to be there for uh, 50,000 years or whatever. Yeah. So, doesn't biodegrade. So uh, it, in working with MIT, they t- took these bottles and it, these little shacks that have had metal roofs, mm-hmm. they open up a piece of the roof, put the bottle in and a certain liquid, and all of a sudden it would light up during daylight hours. It would be like a, having a light in the house. They never had lights before in that village. In India, wow. they had um, they, rice is their big thing that they eat in these, vi- in these remote villages. So the rice husks provided the fuel that they built these furnaces to burn the rice husks. And they were able to generate a small amount of electricity, which kept, the, you know, the day didn't end when the sun went down. They had lights at night. And in Nepal, it was something similar where they had a, they were able to, to, to generate 
with all these uh, leaves that would otherwise burn, they were able to channel it into uh, little power plants that could power a hmm. small village. Interesting, uh, very interesting work. I had nothing to do with making the documentary, just voicing it. But exciting, really. It's exciting to see what we can do with sustainable en- energy and all over the world. I was, am- yeah. I was amazed last year when I was in South Africa that you could use a cell phone anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. Everybody had iPhones. And that I is amazing that, uh, that, that <laughs> the, the revolution in um, smartphone technology is, is a worldwide phenomenon. I couldn't Maybe. believe it because we places in California we can't we don't have cell service and here we well work. you know that that's because <laughs> the people don't want these little cell boxes in their neighborhoods yeah so that's why you have dead spots because they the powerful people are able to fight to keep those things out yeah and here we were out in the wilderness you know yeah. out, you know miles from anything and we had, we had cell service it was amazing yeah. so well, um, I, the, just to say uh, documentaries are the thing I like to do most. But, uh, you know, I do all kinds of different things, internet uh, videos, which is something that didn't exist some years ago. Now it's so common and I do a lot of them and other little things. Other, you know, and, and then national commercials are the biggest things that I do. Yeah, you've done some, uh, what, ACT mouthwash? Yeah, ACT mouthwash. Yeah. ACT mouthwash and uh, New York Yankees radio. We should mention that. Yep, I, uh, I, I introduce segments on the, uh, the baseball broadcasts. I've been doing that. This is my fifth season. That's great. Yeah, so that's nice, yeah. So you probably have some Yankees fans that may be listening to this show. <laughs> well, if they listen to the, to the broadcast, they'll hear me. Yeah, they'll recognize your voice. Most so- you know, I, I just introduce these segments like, it's time for the scoreboard show, or this date in Yankee history. <laughs> those, are the, those kinds of things. That's great. So, so are, do you feel comfortable with internet broadcasting versus radio broadcasting versus everything else that's going on? I mean, how do you feel about what's happening with with uh, this kind of venue? It's really two different things. It, it's broadcasting in the traditional sense, but for example, you appeal to uh, PIs and a wide universe around that. But you're not broadcasting to the masses as radio has to do. Uh-huh. So we're, we're, um, we're more of a mass media. And podcasting and internet radio is more narrow casting. So, you know, the, the audience that I deal with on my radio station will reach, you know, several million in a week's time. And podcasts, are, it's hard for them to get anywhere near that because there's so many of them. Right. And most of them are very specific in a specific area, specific industry, or specific interest. So, you know, there, there's room for all of it. Uh, there have been, has been an adverse effect on the radio industry from, first of all, cable TV. Secondly, mm-hmm. uh, Internet, information flows over the Internet. People might say, I don't need to turn the radio on. I can just get it right here on Google. So, you know, it's... Radio has always had to adjust to different things. The, uh, yeah. I, when I first went to CBS, we had directors. They got rid of all the directors because they really weren't necessary, but they were there for so many years and they were unionized. So I'm sitting with – CBS was going through a, a reduction in force, if you might say, and people got laid off. So it was a big layoff day and I'm sitting with this guy re- ready to go on the air. 
And I said, wow, all these layoffs, it's a tough day for CBS. And he said, this is nothing. You should have been there the day that the sound effects department was disappeared. Uh. He was an old timer and he was, you know, radio was the preeminent medium back, you know, was all the way into the 1950s when TV came and created all that competition. So what I'm bringing out is radio has always had to adjust to the different marketplace and yeah. it's consolidated. It's, there's, there's far fewer people doing the radio than used to be, you know, right. when you had directors, like I just said, and there was a technician for every technical thing. And now we do, we run our own boards and we do our own technical work. All those guys that used to do it took buyouts. Right. Michael, we we're at the end of our show. They're letting me know we have to wrap it up. So um, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you as always. And, th- and to my listeners, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and sometimes investigative reporters and news anchors. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be here. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.